Chapter Seven, Part B: Women of America by John Roos Laris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hardly to that brother did the country owe greater debt than to the women whom it had nurtured. Patriotic as were the majority of the American men, ready to suffer as well as to die in the cause of country, they were less patriotic and their endurance was less splendid than that shown by the women of our land. The patriotism evinced itself in many different ways, sometimes in mere sallies of wit, as with the famous Miss Franks, the daughter of a Jewish merchant. Rebecca Franks was celebrated for her wit and accomplishments. She was a loyalist at heart, and afterward married Sir Henry Johnson, an English general, but her keen jests at the expense of the British did not impress them with her devotion to their cause. When, at a ball in New York, Sir Henry Clinton, then holding on with rapidly relaxing grasp to English dominance in America, called to the musicians to play Britain's Strike Home, Miss Franks remarked that what he should have said was Britain's Go Home, other ironies are credited to her, but none probably having such keen point as the repartee of a South Carolina maiden, in whose presence Colonel Tarleton spoke sneeringly of Colonel Washington and wished he could see this paragon. Had you looked behind you at the Battle of the Calvins, Colonel Tarleton, replied the young lady, you would have had that pleasure. Whereat the hard-fighting dragoon, who on that day had run harder than he had fought, was much discomfited. This was the spirit of the American patriot woman, but it often evinced itself in ways more serviceable to the cause of freedom. When Washington was encamped at White Marsh, a surprise was planned against him, and it would undoubtedly have proved exceedingly disastrous had not the plan been overheard by Lydia Dara, who lived in the house on 2nd Street, Philadelphia, opposite the mansion occupied by General Howe, where the plan was discussed, the family being supposed to be in bed. Lydia returned to her room after her espionage, and had the nerve to remain quiet, as if asleep, when one of the officers knocked on her door to inform her that the conclave was over. Then, with quick ingenuity, she told her husband, a loyalist, that there was need of flour and that she must go to Frankfurt to procure it, and having on this pretext secured egress from the British lines, she hastened to Whitemarsh. On her way she met Colonel Craig of the Light Horse, and to him confided her secret. Then, with the lightened heart, she hastened back and managed to return unsuspected. The surprise consequently failed, but the part played by the demure little Quakeress was never guessed, though the British knew that someone had betrayed their plan to the American general. Had they suspected, it must have gone hard with Lydia, but she escaped the consequences of her brave act, which might have been death, while her country reaped the benefits thereof. 
not so marked by the evidence of personal courage, yet splendid in its patriotic self-sacrifice, was the spirit shown by Rebecca Mott when her house was occupied by the British soldiery under Macpherson, and besieged by Marion and Lee. Macpherson's position was apparently impregnable, and he was holding out in anticipation of the coming of Lord Rawdon with a large force. Mrs. Mott was a firm friend of the American cause, and had often bestowed generous hospitality upon the American officers, including Lee himself. To burn the house seemed to be the sole means of dislodging Macpherson, but how could the friends of liberty destroy the property of one so devoted to the cause as Mrs. Mott, a widow, and one who had often nursed back to life some stricken continental soldier? but Mrs. Mott overheard the discussion, and she assured the leaders that she was gratified with the opportunity of contributing to the good of her country, and should view the approaching scene with delight. Moreover, when the generals had reluctantly determined upon the measure, she gave them a bow and arrows, which had been imported from India, that by this means the flaming combustibles might be shot upon her roof. The plan was carried out, and Macpherson forced to surrender, while the house was burned to the ground. Mrs. Mott contemplated the destruction of her home with an unmoved smile, and busied herself in succoring and caring for the wounded, Tory as well as Whig, for suffering annihilates such distinctions, with a heart apparently as free from care and rejoicing in victory as if she had gained rather than lost by the day's work. Another daughter of South Carolina, which state claimed Mrs. Mott as its own, displayed on more than one occasion qualities that fell nothing short of heroism. Martha Bratton was the wife of a revolutionary colonel, and she lived in a spot in York District, that was exposed to all the storms of war that swept over the devoted state. Her husband was peculiarly obnoxious to the Tories, and Captain Huck, or Huck as it spelled in the order of his commanding officer, was dispatched after a severe defeat inflicted upon the loyal forces by troops under Colonel Bratton, to compel by force the wife to betray the husband into British hands. A soldier under Huck's command actually placed a reaping hook at Mrs. Bratton's throat when she refused to reveal the whereabouts of her husband, and Huck did not interfere. But his second-in-command, with more decency, even with a suspicion of insubordination, interposed in the lady's behalf, though not until she had looked death in the face for a time, and had not recoiled. Threats were of no avail, and finally Huck abandoned his purpose as impracticable. The next day brought vengeance upon him for his brutality, for he was attacked by Colonel Bratton with a far smaller force, himself killed and his troops utterly routed. The officer who had interfered in behalf of Mrs. Bratton was taken prisoner and might have hanged by the enraged Whigs had not the lady fortunately recognized him in time to preserve his life by her story 
of debt to him. Another anecdote of Mrs. Bratton attests her heroic firmness of character. Ammunition was very scarce with both patriots and Tories, and a portion of that sent by Governor Rutledge to the former had been confided to the care of Colonel Bratton, and by him placed in an outhouse on his place. News of this came to some loyalists, who at once, in the absence of Colonel Bratton, organized a foray to seize the powder. But Mrs. Bratton was warned in time, and she immediately laid a train of powder to the outhouse, took her stand at the end of the train, and when the enemy appeared, set fire to the train and blew up the outhouse with its valuable contents. The officer in command of the forayers was furious at being thus outwitted and demanded to know the perpetrator of the deed. Mrs. Bratton did not flinch. It was I who did it, she replied. Let the consequences be what it will. I glory in having prevented the mischief contemplated by the cruel enemies of my country. One hardly knows whether the more to admire the gallant bearing of the lady or the coolness which led her to await the actual coming of the enemy and not to destroy such valuable property until the necessity for doing so became immediate. These were but types, though pronounced ones, of the spirit that was almost universal among the patriot women of America during those stormy and fateful days. It was to be found dominant throughout the land, from New England to the Carolinas, though of course it was more evident and possibly more fervent in those districts where the war actually set its foot. In feeling, at least, women, when once aroused, are more intensely militant than men, as they are more patient and constant under suffering, and it was to the women quite as much as to the men that our country owed its escape from the British yoke. The display of the feeling varied in its manifestations, but that feeling was ever-present in the hearts of the American women of the revolutionary times. The ladies of Boston who abandoned, in the days of oppression, their cup of tea that the abhorrent taxes might not be enforced show the same true patriotism only needing opportunity to call it higher pitch, as did their sisters who bore the insults and outrages of a brutal soldiery when Tarleton rode across stricken South Carolina and planted a hatred that bore fruit in the ambush and the night attack. The women of New England bound upon the backs of husbands and sons and even fathers the old knapsack and placed in their hands the old musket and set them forth, ready to go, yet full of fears for those left behind, to Lexington and Bunker Hill. It must not, however, be supposed that all the enthusiasm, all the depth of feeling, all the patriotism even, was in the camp, feminine or masculine, of the Continentals. Among the Tories, or Loyalists, as they liked best to call themselves, there were many hearts which beat with true devotion to their country, yet which believed that country's best duty, because its highest, 
was to be found in loyalty to the king. Especially was this the case in New York and Philadelphia, which were the strongholds of British possession. It is true that there were many, women as well as men, even more of the former, whose loyalty was but lip service, who cherished in their hearts a devotion to the cause of freedom to which they dared not give utterance for fear of oppression. But there were also many who loved the flag of England as the banner of all that was truest and best, and who looked upon the resistors of British authority as rebels of the baser sort. They were as honest as were their opponents, and they were as fanatical, and they are entitled to the same respect for their devotion to a losing cause as are their rivals for their loyalty to the one that was victorious. In 1778 there was held in the staid city of Philadelphia a certain entertainment given by the officers of Sir William Howe to their general, to pass into history under the name the Maschianza or the Medley. It was the most gorgeous pageant, wherein were tournament and feet and dance, and to it came most of the bells of Philadelphia, forgetful of, or uncaring for, the army of their brethren, ragged and barefooted, and still suffering from their winter of starving amid the snows of Valley Forge. The loyalist ladies were in full feather, more literally than would now be the case, the nodding plume then adorning the head of the dame, as frequently as it did the helmet of the soldier. Present are such famous toasts as Miss Becky Franks, Miss Peggy Chu, Miss Nancy White, Miss Becky Bond, and others. The Misses Shippen, equal to any in beauty and wit, do not grace the occasion by their charms. They have fully intended to be present, and have even ordered Turkish dresses for the occasion, since fancy costumes are en regal, but there has been issued a parental ukase to the contrary, Mr. Edward Shippen at the last moment declining to allow his daughters to make merry with the foes of his country. Or it may be that the appearance of the Turkish dresses in the eyes of his Quaker neighbors has influenced his decision, for Mr. Shippen is not a patriot. But there are enough without these ladies, and the merriment is unalloyed. It is a typical scene, this of the Maschianza, even though never before has the revel been of such ornate character, for the bells of New York and Philadelphia and the macaronis of the army often forget the perils of war in the delights of the social function unmindful of the waxing or waning of the patriot or the royal cause. Of those present at the Maschianza, there was one whose romance merits note in these pages, Miss Peggy Chu. Among the officers who on that day and night danced with the breast was one Major John Andre, and his motto of No Rival was carried out at least in his connection with Miss Chu. That they were betrothed was the general belief. That they were lovers may be set down as certain. But a little more than two years later, Major Andre, 
technically if not actually guilty of being a spy, was led beneath the fatal tree at Tappan, and poor Peggy Chew's romance was over forever. If we could leave her in her sorrow to weep for her lover and the overthrown cause of her king, she might pass down as one of the ideal heroines of sad romance. But fact somewhat hampers our sympathy with the lady, for some seven years after the death of Andre, Miss Chu married General John Eager Howard, the staunch fighter of the Calpins, and the general, as was but natural, always denied, even with strange oaths, that his wife had ever cared for one he was but a common spy. So the belle of the Maschianza changed her political faith with her love loyalty but another who has been named in connection with that entertainment shamed many a woman in faith of another kind. With her sisters, Miss Peggy Shipton had been held from the revel, but she had been toasted there. Yet she became, but a short time afterward, the wife of one of the most gallant soldiers that ever drew sword for the cause of America, Benedict Arnold. Had he been as true as he was brave, he might have left an honoured name, and, even as it was, though history has not yet done justice in this wise, Arnold's bitter resentment toward the ungrateful Continental Congress was not without reason and excuse. Nevertheless, his action resulting therefrom was unpardonable. In his treason, as was but natural, his splendid services were forgotten by his countrymen but his wife was true to him in his degradation as in his glory. In an interview with Washington at West Point, she even went so far as to accuse the commander-in-chief of conspiring to murder her infant as well as to degrade her husband. And we can forgive, as did Washington, even this to the tortured woman. During his residence in England after the Revolution, Arnold said to an Englishman who had met him casually, and being unaware of his personality, knowing only his nationality, asked him for some letters of introduction to be used in a proposed trip to America. Sir, I am the only American in the world whose introduction would do you more harm than good. I am Benedict Arnold. There was here more than the bitterness of ostracism but that bitterness, which made all his life a torment, never repelled his wife or caused her faith and love to swerve. She was loyal with even a higher loyalty than that given by her sisters of America to the cause of her country, for she was faithful in heart, as indeed, to one who had in all ways proved unworthy of faith. It was the same Arnold who is mentioned in the diary of another belle of Philadelphia, Miss Sally Wister, when she wrote, Our brave, our heroic General Washington was escorted by fifty of the lifeguard with drawn swords. Each day he acquires an addition to his goodness. We have been very anxious to know how the inhabitants of Philadelphia have fared. I understand that General Arnold, who bears a good character, has the command of the city. She was writing from the Folks' estate in Montgomery County, where she was staying for a time, 
and her diary, which concludes with the above-quoted entry, is full of such warm expressions of patriotism that none can doubt that Miss Sally, who died a spinster, placed the cause of America even before the attractions of such men as Major Stoddart and Captain Dandridge, who vainly attempted to influence her to change her condition, as the quaint old phrase puts it. The days of the Revolution were full of romance as well as of sterner history, and while the women of Massachusetts and the Carolinas, as well as those of interior Pennsylvania and rural New York, proved themselves made of sterner stuff than is custom to expect from their sex, the bells of the great cities, great only for their times, of New York and Philadelphia, flirted and danced and jested and made themselves in all ways agreeable to the red-clad soldiers of England. It may be that these ladies unwittingly and against their will served the cause of their country by enervating the soldiers of the king and keeping them from the sterner training which was making hardy veterans of the Continentals. But romance and the stern aspects of war were not infrequently blended in strange fashion, as in the case of Mary Piper, best known as Polly Piper, of Boston, who was loved by a British soldier named Samuel Lee. Before the beginning of the struggle, the Pipers moved to Concord, and when the regulars marched upon that place to secure the ammunition, which was reported to General Gage as being stored there, Lee went with his regiment. But his heart was not in his work. Love had taught him something, and he no longer, as at first, looked upon all Americans as benighted savages and their cause as flat treason. Miss Polly had scorned his suit as that of a British soldier, and this fact had worked a result. In the running fight at Concord, he did not fire his musket, but he was shot as he ran from the field and was carried, severely wounded, into a house where the stricken were being cared for. A woman bent over him, and he opened his eyes to meet those of Polly Piper. He recovered, but not to serve again as a soldier of England. He returned no more to the red flag, but married Miss Polly and lived quietly in Concord until his death in 1790. Thus love won from the enemies of America at least one sword, and thus was romance justified of its works. The patriotic spirit, which flamed throughout the land, burned with no steadier or more brilliant glow than among the women. All are familiar with the famous picture entitled The Spirit of Seventy-Six, but that picture is incomplete. The octogenarian and the boy should be waved upon their march by the wife and mother, sending husband and son forth to peril or death, while they themselves turn with a smile to the bearing of privation or actual starvation. Not more strongly and nobly did the spirit of 76 flourish in the hearts of the sons of the oppressed country than in those of its daughters, nor was the response more splendid. There was no distinction of high and low. The stately dame, lapped in luxury all her days 
and a stranger to hardship or even anxiety, gave up to her country's cause her dearest joys, and not only sent husband or son to the forefront of the battle, but herself, if she was in the path of war, bore unflinchingly the outrages of an incensed soldiery, and saw her home given to the flames, and the very lives of herself and her children threatened, and yet thought it not too great a price to pay for her country's liberty. The wife of the humble tiller of the soil, with perhaps even more complete, though hardly as recognized, surrender of self, sent forth with cheery words the breadwinner, the support of herself and her children, and turned with grand courage to keep them and herself from hunger, while her goodman was fighting for the rescue of his native land from oppression. Each bore her part, and all with no reserve of gift. The ebullition of the feminine spirit of those days was often little less than fanatical in nature. Women do nothing by halves. They are faithful lovers and enthusiastic haters, and they are not always governed in either feeling by the monitions of unbiased justice or even judgment. In a letter from Mrs. Hannah Winthrop of Cambridge, we find a reference to the fight at Lexington, which, in all its stiltedness of language, shows the fiery and bitter hatred that was held by patriot women for the enemies of their country. Nor can she ever forget, nor will old time ever erase, the horrors of that midnight cry preceding the bloody massacre at Lexington, when we were roused from the benign slumbers of the season by beat of drum and ringing of bells, with the dire alarm that a thousand of the troops of George the Third had gone forth to murder the peaceful inhabitants of the surrounding villages. A few hours, and with dawning day, convinced us the bloody purpose was executing. The platoon firing assured us that the rising sun must witness the bloody carnage. Not knowing what the event would be at Cambridge, at the return of these bloody ruffians, and seeing another brigade dispatched to the assistance of the former, looking with the ferocity of barbarians, it seemed necessary to retire to some place of safety till the calamity was past. The lady is evidently overfond of a certain epithet of sanguinary denotation, nor can she be complimented upon her high-flown style, but it is evident that behind the affectation of phrase there is an intense earnestness of hatred that stands as typical of its sexual source. To the patriot women of America, the British were ruffians and barbarians, and the most bloody-minded of human beings, just as to the loyalists, the Continentals were rebels and traitors, for whom hanging would have been a punishment so mild as to suggest weakness in the administrator. To the patriot woman, poor old George the Third was the very incarnation of all evil and malice, just as to the Tory lady, Another George was the vilest of ingrates to lead the armies of the rebels against the authority of so gracious a king as he of England. 
both were honest in their extremes of fanaticism, and so may well be pardoned, and even admired, for those extremes, with their resultant enthusiasm in the cause of freedom or loyalty. Meanwhile, there existed, though hardly flourished, the gentler arts among the women of America, and Mercy Warren, wife of James Warren and daughter of James Otis, she to whom Mrs. Winthrop's letter was addressed, wielded a more refined and therefore more effective pen than that of her friend, being the one female writer of her day who may be called notable. She was hardly less enthusiastic than Mrs. Winthrop in the cause of liberty, and she was possessed of a very respectable gift of satire, which made her writings a power in their way. When there was discussed among the colonists the plan of suspending all commerce with Great Britain because of the vexed matter of the taxes, Mrs. Warren wore a long, poetic effusion which exemplifies her gift of satire, of which the best lines are these. "'Tis true we love the courtly mien and air, the pride of dress and all the debonair. Yet Clara quits the more dressed negligee and substitutes the careless polonce. Until some fair one from Britannia's court, some jaunty dress or newer taste import, this sweet temptation could not be withstood, though for the purchase paid her father's blood. Though loss of freedom were the costly price, or flaming comets sweep the angry skies, or earthquakes rattle, or volcanoes roar, indulge this trifle, and she asks no more. Can the stern patriot Clara's suit deny? Tis beauty asks, and reason must comply. This is very fair satire, though it would have been better had the comets and earthquakes and volcanoes which clearly would not be influenced by Clara's folly, be omitted from the lines. But, though doubtless the rebuke was merited by a few of the irresponsible and thoughtless girls of the day, who made of fashion their one object of worship, the poem is a libel if applied to the majority of American women of the day, who sacrificed more than the whims of fashion in their devotion to the needs of their native land. Mrs. Warren, however, did better work than that which has been cited. Her history of the Revolution was much admired and for years remained one of the standard works upon the subject, though it might be difficult to find a dozen copies of the book at present time. It was rather personal in some of its political references, and its portrait of Adams brought about a rupture in the friendship that had long existed between the Warrens and the Adamses. But this was but for a time. Mrs. Warren's style was tainted with the affectation so prevalent in that day, and she was profuse in classical allusion, as were the majority of the authors of her period. She writes thus to Mr. Adams at the time of the calling together of the First Continental Congress, Though you have condescended to ask my sentiments, in conjunction with those of a gentleman qualified by both his judgment and his integrity, as well as his attachment 
to the interest of his country, to advise at this important crisis, yet I shall not be so presumptuous as to offer anything but my fervent wishes that the enemies of America may hereafter forever tremble at the wisdom and firmness, the prudence and justice of the delegates deputed from our cities, as much as did the Phoenicians of old at the power of the Amphitosans of Greece. But if the Locrians should in time appear among you, I advise you to beware of choosing an ambitious Philip as your leader. Such a one might subvert the principles on which your institution is founded, abolish your order, and build up a monarchy on the ruins of the happy institution. This extract shows not only the style of the writer, but the esteem in which she was held by some of the foremost men of the day, for Adams would not have asked the sentiments of one for whose judgment he had not profound respect. Dramatist, poet, historian, and correspondent of some of the most noted men of her day, Mercy Warren stands as the foremost woman representative of American letters in revolutionary days. It is true that her activities were by no means confined to this period, for she was born in 1728 and died in 1814, having thus passed 87 years of well-filled life. But she is as much the woman writer of the revolution as Freneau is its male poet. Perhaps neither name is familiar to this present generation, but Mercy Warren and Philip Freneau, if not of the highest order of their calling, did notable work in the cause of American letters, and the former is well worthy of being included in any work that purports to tell, however incompletely, the history of American womanhood. The shadow passed at length, leaving the country maimed, bleeding, but still lusty with vigor and with the waxing strength of youth. The passing of the shadow found the women of America, for the most part, shorn of the gods that women love, destitute of the lesser things of life, but filled with a proud sense of a new birth with their country. To the triumphant result of the years of strife and struggle they had contributed in full measure and they were ready however they might be hampered by present conditions to reap the fruit of the period of contest no less than the men though in different fashion moreover though in hidden methods they had asserted themselves and the power of their womanhood as never before they had turned from the sporadic and eccentric attempts of some of their sex to win fame by religious leadership or other such manifestations of restless ambition. They had shown their power of concentrated and universal consecration to cause when it was found worthy thereof, and they had evidenced their intensity of devotion to that which was of the best. The period of formation was over, the battle-filled days of the revolution saw the birth of the american woman as an individual entity there is yet another name which must be recorded here less for the merits of the work done than for the sentiment which attaches to that work 
there still stands on arch street philadelphia the little house where betsy ross made the first american flag that was given to the breeze of battle and conquest not perhaps the very first american flag since paul jones rattlesnake flag might fitly claim that honor but the first to be recognized as in any way national and to survive and therefore honored as truly the first of its kind it is not betsy ross but the birth of the flag of our country of which we think when we look at that little house and remember why it is honored but it is fitting that the maker of the flag which is the symbol of our country should find mention here even though she had no other claim to be remembered among the notable women of our land and her fate is happier than that of her sisters of the revolution for the outward evidence of her work remains while that of the rest has passed away and is forgotten yet their work regarded as done by the women of our country in general was greater than hers for she but furnished the symbol of that which they by their courage and endurance of hardness and enthusiasm and faith made a living thing nor must there be forgotten another contribution of the women to the cause of their native land their prayers it is a scoffing age but there still remain some who believe that prayer is of avail that more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of and these will not doubt that the petitions which went up from the length and breadth of the land for the success of the beloved cause were effectual in result there were many women who from lack of opportunity or power had nothing else to give than their prayers for their country and these they gave in full measure and with a fervency that doubtless helped to win the answer that they sought End of chapter 7, part B.